Welcome to this episode of the Wagging Tales podcast. On this episode, we've got Dr. Liang Su Tien. She's a certified fear-free vet with elite status or an elite fear-free vet who has joined us on the podcast to talk about the fear-free vet care movement and the fear-free pet professional movement. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So, Susan, you graduated in Sydney with your uh, first class honours and bachelor's in veterinary science in 2008. But I'm sure that that's not when you started doing the fear-free veterinarian things. So, yeah. before doing that, do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Obviously, we do know that you're a mother of two. You've got three rescue dogs and three rescue cats, and you're very busy both in and out of work. But do let us know a little bit more about yourself. Okay, so um, basically, unlike many people who end up being a vet, um, I didn't really have that passion for start as a kid. Um, so going through my teenage years, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. It made a lot of sense to kind of follow in my dad's footsteps, um, him being an accountant. So I actually did an undergraduate studies in um, accounting and finance first, worked a couple of years, um, but felt there was a, um, a gap and sort of a, a hole in um, my day-to-day life going to work. Um, so at that point in time, a, couple, a few years back from then, I, I did have my first um, ever uh, dog. So my parents were quite firm and certain that they didn't want us to have pets so early um, in our lives, they wanted to ensure that we would be able to responsibly look after them. Um, my first dog, which was a West Highland White Terrier, his name is Blizzard, um, had a lot of skin problems and, and the local vet community couldn't seem to help him. And um, just something in me just felt that I, I feel I could do better. I would love to be able to, um, you know, put myself out there and, and serve others. Um, and I discussed it with my parents. They were extremely supportive of this career switch. Um, so I went into vet school as a, a mature student. I think um, there were a lot of benefits of that because I knew that this was really what I wanted to do. Nice. So was there any specific situation during your earlier career that you decided that you wanted to do fear-free as a vet. Okay, so um, the whole concept of fear-free, you know, stems from understanding and acknowledging that our pets do have um, emotions. Um, they they feel the same sort of emotions that we do: fear, anxiety, stress, happiness, excitement. Um, to be honest, this was not something that I was um, aware of at all. Um, it, whether it was in vet school or um, upon graduating. So I've been working as a small animal veterinarian for 15 years. And um, in school, you know, we did have a module or two on behavior and it was very simple things, just simple um, concepts of the Pavlovian um, learning theory and, and not not too much else, to be honest. Um, perhaps the operant conditioning as well and some um, aspects of desensitizing and counter conditioning, but that was pretty much it. Just kind of like maybe two weeks of behavior course, and and that was pretty much my exposure to behavior. Um, fast forward, and thirteen, no, twelve years later, so that would be three years ago. Um, I became extremely passionate um, um, on behavior, 
And um, this was, uh, this had arisen from um, a case that happened in Singapore where um, a healthy three-year-old dog um, was euthanized on the grounds of having um, behavioral issues. Um, And this had come after, I believe, another case um, a few years back, maybe about four or five years back, um, where it was a similar case of a dog that had an absolutely healthy dog that had been euthanized um, because the dog was alleged to have um, aggressive um, tendencies. Um, so this was something that really bothered me. Um, and I went on full drive trying to figure out um, what was it that led to this? Um, was it something that could have been prevented from the onset? Um, or was it something that um, the industry as a whole, you know, so different people and different stakeholders from the industry um, may have also inevitably contributed to this dog's behavior. And therein comes myself as a veterinarian. So if an animal comes into our clinic um, on an annual basis, at least for an annual health check, if not more, like if they fall sick or if they have some skin issues, then, you know, why um, is, is the way that we handle the animal um, then also resulting in some um, behavioral tendencies? So this um, case where this dog was uh, euthanized because of uh, supposed aggressive issues um, really made me try to figure out, was there anything that we could do better as um, a profession, number one, to make the whole vet visit, um, you know, less fearful for our and also, how is it that we can um, set up their environment um, to be to to contain less triggers? So we are trying to set up their home environment, set up their 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 environments to, so that the dogs have more chances of success. Um, so you know, my my interest in behavior um, and subsequently um, getting into the fear free learning journey um, arose only about three years ago. It's kind of a slow update, isn't it? Because like. We we're trying to do the same thing with our dogs, our cats, or our pets, and we're technically trying like to make it more comfortable for animals to be in to get assessed or to go through treatment and stuff like that. But if you think about it, pediatricians have been doing it for like what 20, 30 years. They put, you know, candy in the waiting room, they put toys in there to make the kids feel more comfortable. Yeah. And I so I feel like it's it's about damn time, right? That we, we can make our animals feel comfortable as well. It's it's very interesting that that was the, one of the big triggers for you because it's quite similar to us as well. Even just, geez, I think it was two months ago, there was a similar case where a dog bit one of these owners mm. and they called us in. And before we could even get started... They panicked and put the dog down. Oh. And it was absolutely devastating, to be honest. It's one of these things that I find very difficult to stomach because they did the correct step. They they called up and they they initiated help. But before that help could even start, they found a vet that just put the dog down. That was only a couple of months ago. And then there's been so many of these in the past. And with with what we know about canine behavior and canine cognition nowadays, in my opinion, there is no reason for behavioral euthanasia at all. We know know enough about how the dog's brains work. We can rehabilitate them. 
And uh, mm. it's very nice to hear, not just yourself, but to know that that's partly what this movement's moving towards as well. Because it's a very, mm. it's quite a dark topic, and it's one that hits yeah. a lot of people quite hard. From, from my perspective, you know, initially my passion was driven by the fact that I just felt that, um, you know, the veterinarian that was involved in this case um, did not really present all the options possible for the owners. Um, one very important one was to reach out back to the animal welfare group that had adopted, uh, that had um, given the dog to um, those those set of owners. So, and then when I when I figured that actually it's 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 beyond that as well. It's not just how the veterinarians should have been improved, but then if we take a step back and think of um, what what else encompasses the dog's life, so we have training, um, we have day to day care, um, veterinary care, grooming care, husbandry. Um, right from the start, the dog was acquired and entered to that household at five months of age. What could have what could have been done better? How could have how could dog have been set up for success all right through their lives? Because I think what happens and and similar to what you just mentioned in the recent case, people tend to be very um, reactive. Um, so a problem arises and then they jump on it and then they try to. They panic and they try to find the quick fix solution. And in the case that you talked about, the quick fix solution was to get rid of the dog permanently. But what could we have done better right from the onset of getting the dog? How could it, how could we have trained the dog in um, a, the, a positive reward-based uh, method? Um, how is it that we could have practiced certain care techniques of the dog to prepare the dog for um, being handled by um, strangers in future and also recognizing that not all dogs um, want to be handled. I mean, I, I like to tell my clients, you know, when they come in and say, my dog's so antisocial, my dog does not like to meet other dogs, just keeps on barking. And then sometimes I'll just kind of inject a little bit of um, similar to how we are. Not all of us are extroverted. Not all of us want to go up there and shake hands and high five, you know. Um, so similarly, right? Some days we've got good days where we feel like we want to interact more and some days we just feel a little bit retreated. And we need to respect that animals have that emotional spectrum as well. Um, and I think it's all about education, which unfortunately right now is lacking. So, yeah. I mean, if if not for work, I don't even want to leave the house. So I completely understand yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> not this is not something that I was actually planning on talking about, but this is it's very very in line with what uh, what I'm seeing as well. And one of the biggest things I've noticed is even with animal welfare groups, a lot of them have got they've got great hearts, they've got great intentions. But obviously, their their aim is to rehome as many dogs as they can. I must say, some of the animal mm. groups are awesome. But now and again, you get these situations where they set the dog up for failure based on where the dog is going. And mm. that could be solved a lot just by the education of the potential adopters, the, the people handling the adoption cases, the all of that stuff. And it's things that we are actually looking to try and help with as well, because not everybody wants to go to a centre or a classroom to do this. So if there was more online courses for things like that, I think it would be a big benefit to the mm. whole system. So it's, uh, it, I completely agree with 
everything that you're saying there. Um, the other thing as well is that there's a certain aspect of pride and a lot of the time people don't want to lose face to use a more sort of Singapore term. They they want to keep the ego going and as a result they will be more willing to put the animal in harm's way rather than lose that ego which is heartbreaking to see and I, I just I'm really really happy to hear you talking about the fact that some dogs don't like to be handled I mean when I bring Athos into the vet and Athos is a big gentle dude now um mm. contrary to anybody that's binge listening the podcast I know you may have just listened to the first episode about Athos but rest assured he's very gentle nowadays but when I take him to the vet I have to be the one to help handle him I can't hand him over mm. to vet tech. He's not going to do anything to them, but he's not going to let them draw blood. He's not going to let them, you know, check under his tongue. He wants mm. he wants somebody he trusts helping at the same time. Mm. And there's nothing mm. wrong with that. Definitely. Just to touch on the behavior side of things, I, I think that, Fraser, you, you'll probably agree with me on this as well. As, as a trainer, as a behavioral trainer in Singapore, one of the main issues I get the most is that a lot of the times the owners wait till there's a problem before they engage us. Mm. And then because of that, like the problems already stemmed or rooted in so deep that it becomes more difficult to rehabilitate or to train the dog out of it or to counter condition the dog out of it that some people just feel like, ah, you know what? I, I don't want to put in this amount of effort for that, but mm. it, it could be solved very easily. If you started earlier, like you don't have to start from day one, but like, as soon as possible kind of thing you know so within what you're doing if you had a magic wand and you could just sort of say this is what's going to happen in the future what would you want to mm. see happening okay um yeah so very interestingly so the fear-free movement um started in about 2016 in the u.s to date, I think, um, if I count it correctly, there are um, 15 of us vets out of 490 listed um, in the Singapore list. I mean, I'm not sure if all of them are practicing, um, but it gives you quite a good idea of um, the very small proportion of um, veterinarians who have been fear-free certified. So um, I would like to think that, yes, they perhaps know a little bit about it, but maybe just haven't gone the extra step to embark on the learning journey. Um, but what is encouraging is that um, our local veterinary technician diploma course um, run by Tomasic Poly actually requires that all of their graduates be fear-free certified. I actually wanted to go in to conduct a couple of modules um, on teaching handling, extra. Um, but they said, oh, you know, we've got this all sorted. We, one of the prerequisites is that um, they, they, they want their graduates to be fear-free certified. So that's wonderful. However, um, I'm thinking that, yes, you can, you can most certainly have the support team thinking the right way, doing the right thing. But ultimately, you need the vets to also come on board because if you've got vets heading the clinic, you can have the support team saying, this is what I think should be done. But how often does your voice get heard? You know, I had a magic wand. Um, I would love for all veterinarians to go through this. That's one. Um, and just to let your listeners out there know, you know, Fear Free also is extended to uh, other aspects of the pet industry. So you've got your dog trainers. You've got a Fear Free certified dog trainer program. You've got a Fear Free certified shelter program, um, home border pet sitter program. You also have a website which is free accessible to all pet owners. 
So all you need to do is just click on the Fear Free Pets, Fear Free Happy Homes website, which um, I rephrase you would put on the uh, the podcast notes after. Um, and check it out because it's got so much good information out there. Even something as simple as feeding your dog. If I were to just give a very simple example, what it would be the traditional way of feeding your dog. You scoop up their food, you put it in a bowl, you put it in front of them, and then that's it, right? But there is so much, uh, there is a much better way that you can feed the dog. Yes, and if you're in a rush, you ha- you, you you may need the bowl uh, method, but really there's, there, there, isn't, there is other alternatives where we're actually trying to allow the animal to use their minds, use their um, five senses. So you can put them in snuffle mats, in kongs, in feeding toys. You don't even have to buy them. You can make them on your own mineral bo- towels, let's say, towels that are, are rolled up and you put kibbles inside. You roll them and you knock them up. Just things like that. Very simple things that you can keep the dog engaged. So you can move from a complaint of saying, oh, my dog finishes his food in five minutes. He's looking at me. He's counter surfing, trying to take my breakfast. Well, if you tried a different way and if you gave them something that could last a lot longer, um, that counter surfing may happen less. But of course, we're going to have to adjust other things as well. But this is just one small and simple example that's a fantastic example, actually, because this is something we talk about quite a lot as well. I remember the first time I heard about it, and it was it was years ago when I was uh, working with one of my first mentors, Dr. Tom Mitchell, and he calls it the ditch the bowl movement. Mm-hmm. And um, such a simple thing that people don't think about, and it does so much for your dog. You're talking about hitting their their mental activity requirements for the day. You're talking about slowing them down so they've got healthier intake and diet you can even talk about giving them bigger range of food because obviously if you get if you just give them tinned canned food it's quite difficult to play scent games with soft wet food so you're gonna have more Mm. of a varied diet and there's just so much benefits from doing something so simple yet Mm. it can have so much of an impact on your bond your dog's ability to be more optimistic to be better socialized That's a fantastic example, actually. I like that. Now, just to go a little bit deeper into what it actually means, if you were to tell us what does being fear-free actually mean for the professionals and the owners and what's the difference between like traditional veterinary care and fear-free veterinary care? I guess the aim ultimately is to try to ensure that the animal that comes through the veterinary clinic experiences as little fear, anxiety, and stress as possible. So there are three um, markers that we we look at. So dogs and cats both show different body language of signs of when they're in, when they're having and experiencing fear, when they're feeling anxious, and when they when they're experiencing stress as well. So understanding, number one, um, their body language, more fearful, more anxious, more stressed, um, and starting this not just from the time that they enter the vet clinic, but also in the preparation of coming to the clinic. So how is it that we can prepare our animals for the veterinary visit in a less stressful manner? This um, terminology is fear-free. I think it's it would be quite difficult to actually um, achieve zero fear altogether, but I would focus on it being as fearless as possible, you know? Um, So starting from the visit to the um, clinic, getting into the car, are we putting our pets 
roughly into their crate for a cat um, or I'm acclimatizing them to their carrier um, so that they would naturally walk in because the carrier is a familiar item in the house. So do we take this cage out only when it's time for a vet visit? So that would already set the cat up to feel anxious. Why is this carrier out? So one thing I tell um, my clients is what sort of carrier to buy. Um, something that has a lid you can open from the top so that the cat can pop his head out and jump out as he wants to. And it must have a gate in the front as well. So we avoid pulling the cat out. Um, so if I were to use a uh, cat in ex for, as an example, the cat should be in a, in a carrier that they are familiar with. Um, when they get into the clinic, um, for cats that do have um, very obvious signs of um, fear, anxiety and stress, um, I would also recommend to put them in a time slot um, where there are few animals in there. So either the first slot of the day, um, my first one after my lunch um, hour or the last appointment of the day. Um, so we reserve these slots for um, pets who need extra time, extra space, um, and a clean smelling environment. It shouldn't be an environment where it's, you know, smelling of many different animals. And then coming into the clinic, the waiting time also should be sometimes minimized, sometimes extended. It really depends on the patient. So I do have some dog clients, for example, um, where the longer they are exploring the grounds outside my clinic, the more relaxed they become as opposed to whisking them in, putting them straight on the table and just getting the job done. And then we also do have a small subset where the faster you get things done, they're much happier to be out of the clinic. So we need to also know our, our patient well. So a traditional handling would involve a lot of restraint, perhaps some force. So let's just take an example of a blood draw. You know, um, your dog Athos would not let a vet tech or vet techs handle him. What would be less stressful for him would be Fraser being there, being the emotional pillar of strength. And then perhaps, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but if a vet tech then came in to hold the vein, or maybe you might be equipped to hold the vein, and then the vet puts um, the needle in subsequently after a few touches with the cotton ball, with a little bit of alcohol, just to let Athos get used to what that might feel like. Um, so then that moves away from the traditional handling of just brute strength and force to something where we are um, aware that Athos may not like handling by strangers. So let's see how can we make this less stressful for him. Also, I think recognizing that there are some cases where for safety reasons, you know, we do need to do what we call gentle control. The sound of needing to use a muzzle in a lot of people's heads that the animal is aggressive, is dangerous, um, but really a muzzle is um, a form of gentle control. If you choose a, a correct muzzle, this muzzle will allow the dog to breathe. Um, sometimes you can even feed food through the muzzle if the dog is food motivated. And as long as the dog also has been um, introduced to the muzzle prior to the vet visit, you know, if everything comes as a surprise, then um, what do we expect? If somebody were to take my mouth, wouldn't, I would rip that off immediately. So likewise for a dog, you know, we want to be able to acclimatize the dog prior to the vet visit. So a lot of it isn't just what goes on in the clinic, but a lot of it happens out of the clinic before consult. Um, and I do have um, cases um, where 
um, you know, people come and look for me because they know that um, I am fear-free certified. Um, and I'm very upfront. Sometimes I tell them that the first visit, we may actually not do anything. So obviously the patients come in for what we call victory-friendly visits are those that do not need immediate um, veterinary care. So they come in with the owners, bags of treats, loose leash, and you know we've got all our our enrichment tools out there, our feeding tools, with snuffle mats, um, you know my snuffle balls and things like that, my licky pads. And what do I do? I spend a lot of time talking to the owners. The dogs finally warm up a little bit. They move away from being close to their owners, and they eventually, maybe after thirty minutes, might um, come a few steps closer. So I think that's victory. And then we work and 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 hope that the following vet visits would be um, less intimidating. So just for the record, you're absolutely spot on about ethos. Effectively, as long as my wife or I are touching him, then you mm. can pretty much do what you want. Uh, but there was a big thing that you hit on there, which I was wanting to talk about a little bit later, but now is as good a time as any. Preparing the dog for going to the vet is something that... Mm is so neglected. In fact, just, just not so long ago, we did a seminar on that as well because it was something that was just, people were asking a lot about it. It was just amazing how many people had such a negative connotation of a muzzle. And I know we've spoken about this in past episodes, but I always think to myself that even down to the stage of if you had a person that you couldn't talk to, so they didn't speak the same language, and they didn't understand what a doctor was, and they broke their arm, do you honestly expect them not to try and hit the person who's handling that broken bone? So, like, having your dog muzzle-trained has got nothing to do with the dog being aggressive. It's a safety factor for everybody involved. I just thought it's a very, very potent point, which, again, no surprise, is all about education. Interestingly enough, when you started talking about Athos, he uh, started coming back into the office, office there. <laughs> it's similar to my goals right um i've i've shaped muzzles for them i've shaped bringing them to the vet i mean sure it's a very it's a very fun and exciting thing we've we've been to the vet a couple of times whereby we, we actually didn't go there for an appointment we just went there to ensure like they get comfortable with the place and stuff like that now now if i tell them we're going to the vet they they see it like as a trip to the beach or something like that they get really mm. excited they start to jump into the car and then they're they're the ones pulling me into the vet Mm. instead of the other way around yeah that's a good sign so i mean all of that sounds amazing and i really i really appreciate the fact that you went into some good detail about how you shape your scheduling in the office and the, the clinic waiting room and things like that i think that's things that a lot of people don't don't really don't even think about when they think about taking their animals to the vet so just because you are fear-free certified how do you ensure that everybody else working in the clinic is on the same wavelength and doing the same working style and ethical beliefs as you do? So I think for a start, um, you know, I, I would definitely um, want to make it a prerequisite for um, the vet technicians, the vet nurses to um, also start and embark on the fear-free learning journey. So there is a fear-free veterinary technician chapter as well. Um, which the nurses can enroll themselves onto. Um, and I think, you know, 
it, the the whole program in itself is extremely enlightening. Once you start on the on the on the journey and you realize that there's potentially so many other um, areas of improvements that we can make in ensuring that um, clients and their pets who come into the clinic have a as fear free an experience as possible. Um, the mindset would naturally be steered that way. I mean, that's how I would like to think it. I I was. Um, really moved and and a little bit emotional, I'll be honest, when I started doing the course. And it made me want to continue because there's so many different modules and chapters, you know, and sometimes you can lose steam. But um, the way that the the whole fear-free concept is um, has been developed um, really makes me understand um, that um, there's so much more that we can do to ensure that clients and their pets actually want to come through the doors to um, give them what is necessary, an annual health check. So, you know, starting from the veterinary receptionist, being able to um, know how to assess the dog or cat's body language. So, you know, a vet receptionist who may not understand uh, um, dog behavior or cat behavior may, um, may just reach out her hand and attempt to pat a dog. But if also recognize that the dog is showing signs of, of anxiousness um, um, or being shy, um, you wouldn't do that. So I think it's very important right from the start of being of the meet and greet um, protocol all the way to um, the, the veterinary checkup um, as well as the vet tech handling. Um, yes, I think it's extremely important that the whole clinic is on board um, and understands the important concepts of Fear Free. Do you have updated trainings and things like that? Do you like invite people in to do like seminars and courses for your staff to keep them updated with everything? Um, I mean, I would be um, sort of identifying areas where um, I think we should focus on, um, even something like a case like um, ear cleaning. So, an ear uh, ear cleaning service. How do we make as fear free as possible? So it's it starts from. Uh, so we don't, you know, the traditional method might be you just put the animal on the table, get your cotton balls ready and pour the liquid in there. So there's no introduction to the process. Um, the the difference then with Fear Free would be that um, you would want to pair um, the, the ear cleaning process with food if the animal is food motivated. And also just the sight of the ear cleaning bottle. Some of some of the pets may, um, you know, shy away from that and, and, and check that the smell of it means that the ear cleaning process is going to take place. So, um, yes, you know, in reality, is it possible to um, have an animal completely without fear doing an ear cleaning process? I think the answer is no, but we can most certainly try our best to make the experience as, um, as you know, as low stress as possible. Um, and I would also teach clients, again, you know, this would be part of the preparation for the vet visit um, on how to do simple handling techniques at home. Um, so I love to tell my clients to role play, um, especially with you know, um, uh, families that come in. So I'll say, you know, mom could be um, the, the, the owner and the daughter could play vet. Um, how we do that, we can get the mom to station the, the pet and the, the daughter would then come in. Um, and do your gentle touch. You know, you could even um, mimic the stethoscope going on the chest, um, touching the legs. Um, so that's something that I, I try to get my clients to, to be on board with. Um, 
um, stationing, positioning um, to get their animals used to um, how we would touch them from head to toe. Um, yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to be giggling there. I'm laughing because <laughs> Freya, Freya got a doctor's kit and had a stethoscope. Yeah. And she was yeah. putting it in all the dogs. And she went up to Aramis and she put it onto him and she went, oh, fast. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> so yeah, That's why I was giggling there. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't laughing at it. It's a very good point. I didn't even think about that. Although Freya... For, for the listeners, that's my daughter, not one of the dogs. Um, although she was doing that as part of just play, it's a very good point for shaping the vets as well because as much as I talk about getting people ready for that, I've never actually thought about saying to them to role play. And that's a really mm. good way of doing it, especially if you've got family. One burning question that a lot of people have after listening to, you know, learning more about fear free vets, fear free pet professionals will it be more expensive then? Mm. Yeah, I, I think uh, um, if I'm not mistaken, like in the US and, and in other countries, um, fear-free certified vets um, do actually charge um, a higher consultation price. Um, and I think the justification for that is that the there is more time spent um, during the consultation. So, you know, a, a regular... 15 minute consultation may take 30 minutes to 45 minutes because you're trying to get the dog or cat um, acclimatized, you're chatting with the owner, just trying to make the environment a little bit less stressful for the pet. Um, so time-wise, yes. Um, and also the resources that one may need, um, you would be potentially providing um, food rewards. Um, um, I think it would be fair to say that um, a fear-free certified vet might um, feel inclined to charge more. And I think that's what they do in other countries. But um, I'm not familiar with what um, some of the other fear-free certified vets do in Singapore. But in my, in my clinic, the consultation costs are the same. Definitely will cost more, but in the long run, it'll cost less, that kind of thing. Yeah. Because like, yeah. Like, like, like you said, right? So sometimes the dog comes in and the dogs are so scared, so stressed so anxious, you might not be able to do anything. Mm. But a yeah. traditional vet would uh, take out all the restraints and then pin down and then just do what they have to just to, you know, get it over and done with. Yeah. Fear-free certification also acknowledges and recognizes that um, there are some animals, I think in your questions, you know, what if an animal just really cannot be touched, right? Um, so I think what is paramount is... Um, the animal's welfare, the people's welfare, the people who are handling the animals, so the owner, um, the veterinarian, the support team. Um, so I think um, we also need to be mindful that safety is very important. Um, so in the instance where we do have um, an animal that is either not willing to eat anything, take any food, or is not amenable to um, gentle restraint, gentle control, um, then sometimes what we do have to talk to owners about is the need to use pharmaceuticals. Um, and these would be, there are two types. One would be what we call the pre-visit nutraceuticals. So you've got that in the range of um, supplements like your L-tryptophan. Um, and then you also have um, other pharmaceutical drugs that can be given prior to the vet visit. Um, so calming medications that are available um, and 
we would want clients to speak to their vets about that. So there are calming medications that can be given two to three hours prior to the vet visit. Um, and I've used this um, in um, some of the dogs um, with great success. Um, so what happens is that um, I would dispense these, um, you know, with the knowledge. So I would have the animal and the client come in. Um, we would have assessed that the dog may not be um, amenable to touching, but we're not going to rush to do anything on that visit. So what I will then do is I will dispense some um, pharmaceuticals to give uh, to the clients for them to be administered two to three hours prior to the next vet visit. And during that time between that first visit and the, the next one, um, they are meant to assess and determine if those pharmaceuticals work. So what they would do is they would um, give it to the dog at home. They would observe whether the medicines had any effect on the dog and how long the effect was and what the effect was as well. And then from there, we might start to tweak it or if we think that that's a good dose, um, the animals would then come in for their next visit with those medications already um, um, taken two to three hours prior. Um, so some sometimes that alone is good enough. Um, and in some other cases um, where, yes, that might take the edge off the animal to a certain extent, um, but if a procedure needed to be done where, um, you know, more restraint was needed, um, then sometimes we do have to talk about sedation. So sedation, just as with muzzling, should not be viewed in a negative way. Um, we only use it if we really have to use it. Um, and the, the thing of having the pre-visit pharmaceuticals on board is that when the animal then comes into the clinic, the amount of sedatives that need to be used is much lesser as well. So everything is reduced, you know. Um, so that was something that I felt that the um, viewers should know that, um, you know, if you do end up having a pet that really is not amenable to any handling, um, but yet a veterinary um, attention or check is essential. Um, it is important to talk about this to, to your vet as well. Um, a pre-certified vet will also know um, how to differentiate between what is a need and what is a want during a physical examination. So yes, you may want to um, check the dog's temperature, but checking the dog's temperature involves lifting up the tail, poking a thermometer into the anus. The dog is bouncing off the walls, very bright and alert. What is the chances that the dog has a fever? Probably very low, right? A very low chance that the dog has a fever. So the, 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 once, you know, you want to check the dog's temperature, but is that really something necessary? And is it something that you have to do at that visit? Um, I think that's also something that a fear-free certified vet knows how to identify and differentiate, determine what is important and what is essential. There's also like a scale or something, right? Like, because you have to put yeah. the health and the safety of the Oops. animal first. A while back when, when my girls had uh, got into a fight, right? That's so why they had like a puncture wound and, and the ears and stuff like mm. that. They had to be sedated so that yeah. the wounds could be flushed and cleaned yeah. to not get yeah. infections and stuff like that. Yeah, that's right. So, so, so sedating actually is 
um, again, like muzzling shouldn't be viewed as something that you do only for dangerous dogs. So Jay gave a very good example. I mean, when you've just been in a fight, um, I think, you know, I think even in, in, in humans, right, if you've been in a, in a motor vehicle accident, um, and they, they often sedate the, the person just so that um, that in itself also helps to take care of some pain that they may be experiencing. Like we, we automatically draw ourselves toward being quite dog heavy on this podcast, which is not something I want to do deliberately. Because mm. mm. I, I, mean, I grew up on farms. I, I've grown up with lots of different animals and I love, I love cats. I love birds and I've had a lot of these guys growing up. But it's just that I only have dogs at the moment because... We live in a condo and I don't really want to have a cat in a condo, to be honest. Not that there's anything wrong for anybody that does have that. I always feel that things like sedation and keeping cats safe and keeping like parrots safe, because these guys can also give nasty bites and hurt themselves mm. in the process of flailing about. So, I mean, I was going to ask about keeping the animals and staff safe without doing forceful restraint, but you've... You've answered that absolutely beautifully there. Could I just ask, though, could you give an example about maybe a different animal and how you would deal with the likes of, say, a parrot or a cat who might be a little bit more inclined to flail around even under mild sedation? Do you just have to go full-on sedation or do you use things like wraps or anything at all or is that completely out mm. if they fear free Mm. No, not at all. So um, a wrap or towel is actually classified as a gentle control method. Um, so there, there is a technique where um, you can actually um, wrap a cat um, kind of like a scarf, or, you know, a thick towel, which kind of acts like a scarf around the cat's um, head. And um, if a cat is food motivated, I've done blood draws with the cat in that, in this, in the, um, sphinx sort of position with the leg out and the cat is licking on a tongue depressor that is filled with treats. Um, so it is possible. I mean, um, we, I have definitely, um, observed that there are some cats that like a certain position more than others. So I think you've got, you would definitely have fewer cats that like fossil restraints. For sure. So forceful restraint and restraint where they can't, they don't have a choice would involve lying on their spine um, versus one where you are utilizing them being in their natural position. So the sphinx position and you just extend their arm lightly um, and you can collect blood as well. Um, and I think a lot of it also does require some um, cooperation from the owners. So I like to tell the owners what to expect, what I plan to do kind of walking them through the steps right from the start. So I had a, I, I mean, just give a, a little example. This this stuck in my head quite vividly at the start of uh, me embarking on the fear-free journey. Um, there was a dog that had come in for a review of his castration wound. Um, and the dog had been licking on the wound because the owner didn't place the, the cone on. Um, so naturally the wound got infected and with an infected wound, you do feel pain. That area was swollen and, and it was red. Um, and so the dog was obviously very um, clingy to the owner. So the, he didn't want any of us to, to handle him, uh, both because that was his personality and also because he was in pain. Um, 
And this owner just didn't want to have anything to do with the dog. So he stepped back and he was like, no, I'm here. And um, I expect that your vet nurses come and handle him. And I was like, oh, but, you know, it's pretty obvious that he's trying to hold on to your arm so that he can get some comfort from you. Um, and and I insisted he do that because the minute the vet team, um, kind, we didn't even go very close to him. He would already be uh, growling and he was baring teeth. So the owners then said, okay, he, he held the dog. And the minute he did, the dog was really calm and relaxed. Um, I'm not sure why sometimes it, 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 you know, there's a bit of a mindset that, you know, when you step into the vet clinic, you just allow the animal to be shipped off to back, just let the vet tech team handle it. And then you just uh, leave the clinic subsequently. So sometimes, you know, we want to try to educate owners at the end of the day, your, your, your pets feel these emotions, they've got these needs. Um, let's just take a step back and see, is it something that I can help them with um, or not, you know? Yeah. What an absolute dick. Like, like what the hell, man? <laughs> oh, you're, you're, Jay, you'd like to know, he then gave me a really bad review on Google as well. Oh, and then he, Yeah, and then he was like, oh, you know, don't come into this fight because they won't touch your dog. That was just so not the story. What the hell? <laughs> like, but yeah, oh that just God. told it's, So yeah. the number of vets that I've gone to and they've been like, oh no, just leave your dog with us. We'll deal with everything. And I've always been like, no. I mean, to be honest, slight little story. The reason I never liked that is because when I was 16, I rescued a kitten that was hit by a car, nursed the kitten yeah. back to health. Um, she grew into a little cat and she, it was time for her to get spayed. She went into the vet and the vet was like, don't worry, I'll deal with her. Took her into the back and then I got a phone call an hour later saying she'd passed away from an overdose of anesthesia. So I'm oh, super no. paranoid about leaving my yeah, animals yeah. with the vet. Like the, so, I, 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 it's procedure for, for vets and clinics. And like, if you have to put your dog or your, or your pet uh, under sedation, right, they have to like sign the form or something like that. Mm. Yeah, that, that still freaks me out till today. Because like, I, I will read through it, right? I'll read every word of it. And then there's that part that's like, do you want to resuscitate or do not resuscitate kind of thing. And, yeah. and at the first time I saw that, I completely freaked out. Like my, my, my dogs were not anxious, were not stressed at all, but I was. <laughs> I mean, as much as we're, we're, we're making light of that, I think one of the reasons is, is that there are so many vets that do say to the, the pet owners, just leave them with us. You can go away and have a coffee come back in an hour or whatever. So it kind of sets a tone, which has a big differentiation between what you do versus what the more traditional vet care does. So as much as that guy was being a bit of a dick, you know, he probably was shaped by the history of going to other vets, don't you think? Yeah, definitely, yeah. I think that plays a small part. I think you're being too nice, Fraser. honestly. (laughs) Well, I'm not too nice often, but when I am, I try to be. It just—it does lead me to one other question, which I—I uh, I was wanting to ask earlier, but I missed my opportunity. When you've got new clients coming in, do you have like a pre-consultation form so that you can find out more about the animal's behaviour before they come in? So, like, almost like pre-set questions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a questionnaire. 
um, which which allows us to understand a little bit more about them, about their pets, the history. So starting very, you know, from the from the, the, the very beginning of uh, where did they get their pets from, because that can also tell us a little bit more about the pet's personality, potentially, um, and um, quirks, dislikes, triggers, what their favorite treats are, whether they like um, car rides, whether it makes them sick. Um, yeah, definitely. There is a pre-visit questionnaire that we would um, want the owners to fill up first. So it gives us an idea. And one, one of the parts that also says, you know, does your animal um, dislike handling? Um, um, that gives us some idea on how then we would um, sort of design um, to have that consultation pan out. Um, I have had consultations where, you know, people have filled up in the questionnaire, um, my pet refuses, my dog refuses to walk through the vet clinic. Um, so I do consult out, outdoors as well, <laughs> out on the grass patch. Oh, get a bar or something? <laughs> oh, yeah, if only, no. So I've, got a, I, so I've got a lovely grass patch outside my clinic. There's like two pavilions um, where people can just hang out. And it's, it's a good spot because it allows... Um, the dogs to see the clinic, you can give them a treat. They look at the clinic, they see me walking out, they can get a treat, that sort of thing. And then ultimately, we might do the consult outside. So, Okay, so um, we've come to the question portion of our podcast. It's near the end. But these are some of the questions that our listeners sent in. And the first one comes from a Liz in Melbourne. How do you know you have chosen a fear-free vet? Um, there is a listing out on the website, which we can put in the podcast notes, um, where you can search for a fear-free certified practice or a fear-free certified professional. Um, and within that professional, you've got your subheadings of your vet, 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 uh, your vet, your dog trainer, um, pet sitter. And you can also put in um, the location you're in. Um, so if it's Melbourne, you can put in your postal code and a list of the professionals near you within, I think they put, um, you can either put it in the, the number of miles radius. Um, it will come up with a list of people that are fear-free certified. So only people that have completed the fear-free certification program and are continually, continually doing their continuing education on an annual basis um, will be listed in the directory. Okay, um, the next one's from Fiona in Hong Kong. It's not really fear-free based, although I would say, well, the question is, my cat keeps scratching my toddler. Should I declaw my cat? What can I do about this? So I'm just going to jump in a little bit first, because if the cat is scratching the toddler, there is a fear basis to that, because the cat's not going to be doing that for no reason. So it'd be looking at how you can make your home more free or free for your cat. But um, I'll let you carry on with that one. I just wanted to get that little bit in there. There has to be a trigger as to why the cat is swiping and clawing at the toddler. Um, so we would want to ensure that the toddler and the cat perhaps is, uh, they're, they're, they are in um, safe distances from each other and that the cat also has the opportunity to... Um, retreat away if the cat feels that you know it is being antagonized or provoked um so declawing would not be a recommended um option so like in singapore declawing is illegal i'm not sure what um the rules are in hong kong 
um, but declawing declawing is considered an, um, an inhumane practice because it um, actually results in pain. Um, you can get severe infections of the tissues, um, and you can get residual pain in um, the paw where the where the uh, claw digits have been removed. Um, so it's definitely considered an inhumane practice. So I'm sure it, uh, we can find out other solutions um, on how we can ensure that your cat would stop clawing your toddler first. I mean, on top of the actual environment to making it more fear-free for the cat, there's definitely uh, bonding exercises and yep. desensitization exercises that I would advise for the cat and the toddler. Um, and of yep. course, as difficult as this is, and I do appreciate how difficult it is, Educating the toddler on how to be around animals is very, very important. So we got the last one here. Comes from Elena in Jakarta. How many times should I let my dog throw up before bringing them to the vet? Whenever in doubt, uh, my recommendation would be to just um, bring your pet to the vet clinic. Um, if you're not sure um, whether the, the symptom of vomiting is a sign of something more serious, um, in general, if the animal is um, still looking bright, alert, um, doesn't look depressed or is still exhibiting normal behavior, um, you could opt to monitor within um, a 24-hour period. If the vomiting persists um, and the animal looks lethargic, looks depressed, not moving much, not wanting to eat, um, then I think it would be prudent to um, bring your pet to the vet clinic earlier than later. I just want to give you a big thank you for coming on. We'll obviously put everything into the show notes, but what's the easiest way for people to find you or to find out about the fear-free certifications? Yeah, I can I can put my Instagram handle up. <laughs> okay, great. Well, we'll put all of that into the show notes. And again, thank you very much. And um, we hope you. to have you on again. Thank you. You're up for it. Yes, it was a pleasure talking to both of you. Thank you very much. Oh. <laughs>